Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast, episode 92. This episode features NBA official Mark Davis, and it's also available on YouTube to watch. We hope you find a lot of value in it. Enjoy, and let's go. And I know I have to just slow down and just let the play start, develop, and finish. So it's a constant internal dialogue. Um, I, I, there have been times in my career, earlier in my career, not much lately, where I would become angry. You know, I'd be angry or frustrated uh, either at myself because I missed a play or at some perceived slight I felt from a coach and I would be angry. And then the one of the ways I worked through that was I used to say to myself, never give a technical foul angry. Mm. Never. You know, if you don't have complete control of yourself, you can't control the game. So before I can do this, I got to do it myself. And so you, 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 you work on those things. You have to always be controlling your environment. And I think when the game slows down, I think that's what it just moves to your pace. And it's no different than, you know, when you take a walk with somebody, you're either going to speed up or you're going to slow down. But you got generally going to walk at the same pace. The question is, are you walking at your pace or are you walking at their pace? And I think you can recognize that. And sometimes you know this person's going to pull me. I need to go to his pace. And sometimes you don't. So I think all those things are just things you have to recognize. And they're just things you have to deal with internally to make you a better official. All right. I'm excited to welcome in an extremely talented, well-seasoned official, one of the more recognizable referee faces we've seen over the years, 22-year NBA vet from the Windy City. And according to the NBRA, you are an avid outdoorsman. I'd like to welcome Mr. Mark Davis to the podcast. How you doing, sir? I am well. I'm well. We got to update that. As I've been locked in my house for the last 10 weeks, I've been doing a lot of outdoorsman activities lately. And that has transitioned from a lot of hiking and a lot of um, winter camping to more just golfing. And uh, I've gotten soft in my older age. So <laughs> that's what I, happens. That's what happens, huh? Right. Right. Just got to just got to be hard when it gets hard. Right. True. True. Well, that's coming for you, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. And I'm really eager to talk officiating with you because I know you have so much to offer. But um, before we get into that, just take me through your time at home. If you could share your thoughts on adapting to this pandemic, what has been your mindset through this time? Um, I, I have to say, and, I, and, and my family's in the uh, kitchen around the corner here, so you may get uh, maybe a spatula thrown at me or something along those lines. But I am, um, despite the stress of the unknowing, I am really enjoying my time at home. This is probably the longest stretch of time I've had uh, with my wife and three kids in, in, in 20 years. And I'm rather enjoying the time with them. I, we are one to four vote on that. Now my vote is one to four on that one. Um, but it comes with its its pitfalls. I'm a senior in high school, and that's been a very difficult experience for him. But he's much like his father, very pragmatic. And he said he could have been in a foxhole in Vietnam, or he could have been on the beach in Normandy in the senior year. And so hmm. sit on the couch and stay inside really is not that big of a challenge. And that's about our perspective on it right now as a family. It's a great perspective to have. I'm trying to take a similar approach, you know, just appreciating the fact that um, nobody that I know has been affected by this. So that's most important. And like right. you said, just getting a lot of high quality 
family time has been great. Thanks for sharing that. So let's talk a little hoops. Please take us through your journey with basketball from when you first started out officiating to eventually becoming an NBA Finals crew chief. Uh, my journey through officiating has been one that I think it's uh, synonymous with not only other officials' careers, but also my, my life. Um, you know, just every turn, corner I turn, there's a helping hand to help me out. Um, when officiating, I was coaching a uh, freshman basketball team, doing some subbing at Hales Franciscan High School. Uh, the woman I was subbing for came back from work and I needed a job. And the athletic director at the time suggested that I referee some um, because the Chicago public schools, the grammar schools, they play during the daytime. So I could referee a couple games and still be available for practice in the afternoon. Um, my dear friend, uh, Pete Thompson, um, is, an, is an executive in the financial services industry and a pretty accomplished man on his, on his own. But at that point, he had just retired from his two-year officiating career post-college. And he loaned me a shirt, gave me a whistle, and through a family friend, I was able to get a game. It was uh, just as there is now. There were more games than there were officials. Um, so my very first game, I went to a grammar school with, uh, my 4XL shirt posing as a blouse, uh, <laughs> some sweatpants and my whistle with a P in it, my metal whistle with a P in it. And at halftime, uh, Mr. Fred Mills, who was the coach of the school I was officiating, uh, I was working, who also was just as ha just so happened he was one of the little league dads. I was one of his his son was one of my good buddies. He coached little league baseball with my father, uh, and I'd known him. And at halftime, he came up to me and he said, "Hey man," when I was walking out, he said, "Hey Mark," and he handed me a Fox Forty whistle, and he said, "Hey, real referees don't use those kind of whistles. Use this whistle." So that was a, that was the interaction I had with the coach at that time. I switched the whistle. I worked the game. At the end of the game, he paid me, and it was it was way more money than I was making a day teaching four or five algebra and geometry classes. And he asked me, "Did I like it?" I said, "I liked the money." And mm -hmm. he said, "I said, but it was fun." He said, "Well, come to my house Saturday." So that that Saturday, I went to his house, and he assigned a CYO tournament out on the west side of Chicago at Old Resurrection Grammar School. And uh, I went out there, and he and one of his buddies kind of showed me around, and I worked a half of all eight games that day. Uh, I left my shoes, and I got all the way out there, and I didn't have gym shoes. All I had was my boots. It was in the wintertime. So I ran around the block. There's an old famous shine place called Shine King out on the west side of Chicago. And I asked him if they had any, because all the footlockers, everything was closed. First game was at eight. And they had an old pair of bowling shoes. And so I, I bought them for $5. <laughs> I put the bowling shoes on. And uh, I worked like, I was supposed to work one game. I ended up working, as I said, I ended up working parts of eight games. Uh, and that was the first day officiating. And I was 
bitten by it and smitten by it from very much at the onset. I was, I really was, was captivated by it. Um, and, uh, that was in, let me see, that was in the, she came back after Thanksgiving. That was in December of 95. And I was, that was the first day I ever refereed. And because it's the last Friday before school let out for Christmas. And I was hired in the NBA January 1 of 99. Yeah, because it was at the end of uh, the lockout. So it was, it was a short and sweet um, part. It was very intense time. Um, well before Malcolm Gladwell was writing about the 10,000 hours, inherently I knew that um, I had an opportunity to really um, – do something because of the amount of basketball that was in Chicago. I mean, from that day until maybe the week before I got hired in the NBA, I probably, I know I never went more than two days without refereeing in that time, that space of time. Um, soon thereafter, as you know, as referees, you have a referees, you got, you go from one mentor to another um, famous or a famous referee, a very successful referee here in Chicago. Mile Kaysom was uh, one of the top high school referees. I had known him since I was eight. He started the Biddy basketball program that I worked in. So he got me started from there. There was Charlie Brown who assigned the um, public school for the Chicago public schools and was a great player in his own right. Um, he, he lived right. He lived actually between floors, between both my parents. My parents lived on the second floor. My mother lived on the second floor. My dad lived on the fourth. Browns lived on the third floor. He took me under his wing, got me started. And then soon thereafter, a month or two into refereeing, I started working with Keith McClellan, Lionel Yates, and Terry Murphy. And they were all in the CBA. So very quickly into my refereeing development, I was with people that were really fast, you know, fast chargers and hard movers and really knew were on the cutting edge of officiating at that time. So I, I really credit them with my success because I never, I was told the right way from the beginning. So it was difficult to learn and they were hard on me, but I never had really any bad habits to bring from there, you know, rolled into, um, you know, Danny Crawford and Bill Jones and James Capers from the city. James and I grew up about four blocks from each other really good friends with his younger brother. So it wasn't long before he started helping me. So I, I'm really just a, uh, just the product of all of those gentlemen and the help that they gave me. Pam Young, um, you know, just the help that they, they gave me through that time, really. Um, I just was excited about it. I knew I wanted to do it early in my career. I knew I wanted to be an NBA referee. I think it was that next year there was a, like an officials lockout. And I remember watching the officials work on TV and they announced someone and he was 22 years old. And I think I was 26 at the time. And I was like, I'm so far behind the eight ball. I wrote David Stern a letter. I wrote Matt Winnick a letter, Aaron Wade a letter. I think those are the, th I sent them faxes as well. And uh, none of them took my calls or respond to my faxes or anything, except for Matt Winnick. I called and he answered the phone and he said, uh, we got your letter. If you're good enough, we'll find you. And he hung up the phone on me. And, and yeah, and that was, uh, 
you know, from one, there's, there's so many stories from one thing to the next on um, someone touching me, helping me out um, from John Guthrie. Um, those three gentlemen invited me to go to the um, Southeastern Conference had, um, a, they had a camp for officials that were all under the age of 30 in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and John Guthrie was a signer for the SEC at that time. But that was the gist of it. He wanted young officials that were kind of raw, and I went to his uh, his camp, and um, and that's pretty interesting. It was there, and I think about around the room that day, uh, Pat Frere was there, Courtney Kirkman was there, Derek Collins was there, Jason Phillips was there, and they had all been refereeing a lot longer than me, but we were all under 30. And from there, that's what Daryl Garrettson you know, saw me referee, and I was in the CBA the next year, and then a couple seasons later, I was in the NBA. You are listening to the Crown Refs Podcast, the audio experience for basketball official official. official. Serve the game. Sounds like you've had a plethora of great mentors that that really gave you a great foundation of education. Starting off, did you um did you work college Division One? I did. I probably worked about five or six college games. Uh, Mr. Guthrie uh, would give me games. Uh, I, I pretty much only worked with Jim Ferrari, another gentleman out of Detroit. And uh, we would, I worked in the OVC. So I worked a couple of East Illinois games. I worked maybe, uh, I worked maybe five or six games over two years when I was there in, in college, but primarily I worked in the CBA and primarily I worked in the Chicago Public League, to be honest. That's where I did um, until probably my third year in the NBA. The Chicago Public League was still the league that I had worked more games in than any other league. I'm sure you got great experience and reps from those games. Yeah, in the Public League, I'm trying to think, in the Public League and the city city colleges, the Junior College of Chicago, the city colleges, I my when I got to the NBA, I had refereed more NBA players hmm. when they were in high school right, right. and in junior college than I had from any of the college games that I did. Wow. Um, yeah, that, I would definitely say that. That was probably the, the 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 wide expanse of my experience was mostly in the in the public league. The basketball was so good. The junior college basketball was so strong. Um, and I just, you know, I just wasn't around long enough to get an opportunity to do that. Mm. But early on, I knew I wanted to be a professional basketball referee. So it's all good. Gordon trying to defend Lillard. And going to call Gordon for the foul. His first. And now a technical. I think Mark Davis has heard enough from both Mike D'Antoni and the Rocket players. They were complaining a lot in the first half. So, Mark, you've worked over 1,200 NBA games, including 132 playoff games, 12 NBA finals. What are some of your more memorable games or moments in your career? Wow, my more memorable moments. Um, so many. And, 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 and not to, to, to skirt the question, but I, that's why I was asking you when we were talking about this beforehand. Really, not one of them comes to mind. Uh, you know, the, my most memorable now will be my next one, uh, the one I'm looking forward to. And that's kind of always been my approach. Um, I remember one time my dad 
and um, James were having a conversation and we, it was early in both of our careers and wonder when we were going to get a TV game and was this game bigger than that game and what was this game and when were we going to get a big game and I remember my dad saying something earlier this was really my first year in the NBA he said uh, if you think your game is small mess it up and see how small it is hmm. you know you want to you want to turn one of your game you know that's that they're all big right and that's kind of I've always sat with that they are all big and they all require your 100% participation and effort and everything that you have to give and all the skills that you can muster um, to get through them. So I've never really, I don't know that I have a memorable moment, probably. I mean, ones that come to mind, I've been so partner centric. I think about the times when, um, you know, Steve Jabby's last game, I think about, um, you know, games with Danny Crawford, Joey Crawford. you know, those are the re- that was the reason why I went to be an NBA referee was because of the relationships and the talent and the kind of the sense of dedication. It was just really a fast-moving group, and I just so desperately wanted to be a part of that. So most of my memories center around times with family where my partners got a chance to meet my family, I've got a chance to meet their families. So those are the things that probably are most memorable to me, as opposed to a game, a charge, a play, something along that those lines. I love that you you chose people because you know uh, we're able to develop such great relationships with our partners, going to war with them, you know, in every game. So you you develop kind of relationships you can't find anywhere else. I would agree with that. Yeah. So one of the things you said was your most memorable game is going to be your next one. Any idea when that's going to be? No, <laughs> no idea. I wish I did. I, I, one thing I am certain about is um, I know that we will rebound from this. I do know that all hands are on deck in terms of trying to find a safe uh, solution for return to the court. Um, I think I speak for all of the participants, all of the constituents in the NBA and the fans that we have the utmost confidence in Adam. Um, you know, he was the first person to to realize the seriousness of this and to cease operations. And I think that was the right decision. And I think when we come back and how we come back will also be the right decision. All I can tell you is that I know that um, – there are a lot of smart, smart people, motivated people that are really trying to find a way. And so what, what day that'll be, who knows, but I just, I'm certain that there will be one and I'm certain that it'll be done safe, efficiently and, and our, get our players back on the floor uh, and probably put the most entertaining um, sport in the world, in my opinion, you know, back in front of the, the worldview for everyone to see. Thanks for that. That was that was reassuring for sure. I feel I feel better. I feel better after hearing you say that. So. <laughs> Should be encouraged. I know a lot Should of people are on the edge of their seat just waiting. So you, I'm sure yeah, you as well. So well, I'm on the edge. We're all on that edge, waiting too. Hoping, 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 hoping that it happens sooner than later. So when we spoke off air, one of the real interesting things that you said that stood out um, was instruction through tension. 
and being able to recognize emotions. And that's something I don't think we, we really do um, either in a game or looking back. So if you could just talk to me about those two things, instruction through tension and recognizing our emotions. Well, I, I think they go hand in hand. I think if you take something in a sterile lab and you're looking at plays, other people's plays, there's kind of levels to it. If you're looking at, you're watching a game on TV, you're mostly detached. You're watching it. You have the, the benefit of the rewind button. Um, you know, you, can, you have that extra second to make the decision. You get the different angles, easy to make those decisions. Now start throwing in some variables into calculus like it's your game, watching it on video. Sometimes we can be a little bit more defensive. It becomes a little different. Um, sometimes you're watching a game with someone else who works. That can happen. Now you're adding emotions to it. Now put yourself on the floor. Put yourself on the floor um, doing something you've done a bunch of different times, probably easier, um, as opposed to putting yourself in an environment that you've never been before probably a little bit more difficult. So I think if you work backwards with that and you start to look at, you know, when you're watching your games and you're going through instructing yourself, because that's the, really the only way you really get good is to have someone teach you something. You own it to the point where you can now objectively critique your own performance. And it, I think one of the things we miss is we always look at where you're standing, who are you looking at, what happened. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference, and so we look at where and we made a, made a mistake look at where we fell or that we slip. This is where we fall. But I think much of the real improvement in officiating comes is when you look at where did you slip because you slip before you fall. It's a slip and fall. And mm -hmm. too many times we're focused on the fall mm -hmm. and we don't look to the slip. And the slip is really the cause of that problem. And if we deal with the slip, slip doesn't necessarily it might be a step down in the lead it might be a little wider in the lead it might be outside in position at the trail it might be moving on the pass at the slot but it also might be I lost my concentration coach got irritated me on the other end I was nervous I was anxious I was afraid those are all parts of how we make decisions because you I mean we've all spent times where we've looked up at the ceiling all night on a play and you're like, I know I was looking right at it. How did I not make that call? And you watch it over and over and over again. And I remember watching tape with Daryl Garrison years and years ago. Um, and I made a mistake and we were looking at the play and then he told me the mistake and he said, now this was the beginning of the game. He said, I'm about to leave. You watch the rest of the game. He said, now you're going to, don't beat yourself up. You're going to make this, you make this mistake 46 more times. But the problem is, I don't want you to make it 47 times. So you're going to watch this tape. I've told you what you've done incorrectly. I don't want to see you do that again tomorrow. But don't beat yourself up tonight because you did it. You made this same mistake about 46 times tonight. What I'm telling you for is so to tomorrow, you don't make that mistake. So now you add that piece in it. So what was going through your head when you made that decision? And I think if we don't really address what our emotions were, what our thoughts were, then we can't ever correct them because you're going to be nervous. You're going to be anxious. You're sometimes going to be afraid. There's a difference between you having a fear and a fear having you. And I think too many times when we, when we want to macho up, 
you know, we want to match you up about a play or situation and we don't really address what was really going on between our ears, then we're really not in a position to address that the next time it happens so that we can, we can work through that. So it's not about, you know, you talked about moments and times that were memorable to me. I can think of my very first playoff game where I was walking out on the floor and it was a completely different atmosphere. I mean, I couldn't feel my forearms. Just, you know what I mean? That's, it was like a completely different atmosphere. I, I pinched my forearms and I mean, it was like I wasn't touching anything. It was like nothing was there. And all that was, was gonna be a culmination to perform in that environment was gonna be a culmination of whatever habits I had created through that time. And it, the what was real comforting for me in that situation was not that I hadn't, not that I was afraid, but that I had refereed nervous and anxious before. And I knew what to say to myself to make sure that I could perform through that nervousness and that anxiousness. So one thing I just said, referee the defense, stay in your primary, call obvious plays, trust your partners. Just do those four things, keep breathing, count to 10, buy ones, you know, take your time, and then you'll make it through. And that had been happening to me. I've been addressing those feelings my entire career. So, you know, your first playoff game, your first finals game, your first callback game, your first Eastern Conference games are all just different examples of what your very first preseason game was like. Because even though and I may be working in my 23rd year, I may be working, I don't know how many preseason games, but if I'm working with a young lady who this is the first time she's been on an NBA floor, I'm not going to dismiss the fact that this is a big deal to her. Right. And I don't want her to dismiss the fact that this is a big deal. I want her to take this experience, this nervousness, because her next preseason game, she's not going to have that again. She needs to remember those nerves and those anxieties and those emotions for her first regular season game, for the first time she's on TNT, for the first time she's worked a playoff game, so that she can go to those places and say, you know, it's like that scary man. He's never going to go away. You just name him, call my guy Herb. My scary man jumps on my shoulder. I'm like, what up, Herb? We, you've been here before. You know what we do. Sit tight. We're going to make our way through. I don't dismiss the fact that I, I'm nervous or anxious or Herb is here. I just have to work through it. And so I think that's a lot of what we talk about when we're watching tape is you made this mistake. Okay, you were, you were right where you're supposed to be. You were looking where you're supposed to be. You were doing all the things you're supposed to do. But what were you thinking about? Did what the coach say to you on the other end make you lose your concentration for a moment? What were you able to do? How are you able to get yourself back to concentrating? to get on point to what we're supposed to do. Because I believe that if you take an official and you show them what to look at, where to stand, what to look at, and you can teach them what is and is not a foul, if you can get them to harness their emotions, they will be a successful official without question, without question. I hope that's a roundabout way of answering. Yes. Oh, that's great stuff. That's great stuff. Um, so once you do identify these motions, I was nervous. Coach got in my head. I know you gave us a couple. Mm -hmm. What else do you do to kind of overcome that? Or how, how would you recommend other officials overcoming? Basically fighting well, their I'll, fears I'll, on the court. Yeah, fears are different emotions. I mean, look, 
sometimes there are times on the floor where you uh, you become angry, you become frustrated, you become disappointed in yourself. And I think just as we teach players, officials, any performance, you got to get to the next play. So if I don't think I may become frustrated by not answering a question in an appropriate manner and I leave an engagement on one end and I haven't addressed it the way I think is appropriate or, or in, a, in a manner that gives that player, that participant, the answer to their question. And I'm still thinking about what I should have said as I get to the next play and I've got, and I'm in the slot and I get a curl play and I miss it, a tip on the elbow, because I'm thinking about that. That's important. So what I have to do is I have to start recognizing that, leave it where it is and know that I'll come back to it at a different point. Oh, I didn't answer that question. Okay, back to it. Referee the defense, stay in the primary, call the obvious. First dribble's here. Second dribble's mine. You know, I mean, those are the things in constant self-talk. And then sometimes I find myself talking too much to myself, and I know I have to just slow down and just let the play start, develop, and finish. So it's a constant internal dialogue. Um, I, I, there have been times in my career, earlier in my career, not much lately where I would become angry. You know, I'd be angry or frustrated uh, either at myself because I missed a play or at some perceived slight I felt from a coach and I would be angry. And then the one of the ways I worked through that was I used to say to myself, never give it a technical foul angry. Mm. Never. You know, if you don't have complete control of yourself, you can't control the game. So before I can deal with this, I got to deal with myself. And so you, 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 you work on those things. You have to always be controlling your environment. And I think when the game slows down, I think that's what it just moves to your pace. And it's no different than, you know, when you take a walk with somebody, you're either going to speed up or you're going to slow down. But you got generally going to walk at the same pace. The question is, are you walking at your pace or are you walking at their pace? And I think you can recognize that. And sometimes you know this person's going to pull me. I need to go to his pace. And sometimes you don't. So I think all those things are just things you have to recognize. And they're just things you have to deal with internally to make you a better official. Mark, something I get asked pretty frequently uh, with crown refs, and it's if, if I have access to a red flag list. I mean, we got Scott Foster uh-huh. talking about a red flag list, Joey Crawford, Al Batista. Do you know the whereabouts of this red flag list? And can you name a few items in it? You know, I'm going to have to give Scotty credit to that. I, although I can say the first person I ever heard that from was him. I know Al. I know Al stole it from Scott. No question about that. <laughs> and Joey may have said that to him, but I don't ever remember Joey talking to me about a red flag. I just remember always talking to Scott about it. And someone just asked me about it. And I used to have it written down somewhere, but I looked through everywhere and I couldn't find it. As a matter of fact, um, we're having a Zoom session tonight and actually Scott's going to participate. He's going to go over the red flag. Last uh, young guys are on. We, we, we're organized during the, during this COVID break, the G League, the W and NBA referees, all members of the NBRA, we're, we're, we're in like each of us is like 11 pods of eight officials. Oh, that's great. And you kind of have a text chain with your guys, do a Zoom call once a week. You figure out another group. We've had Mark on. We've had Monty. We've had Joey. 
Um, and so this week, my pod has um, Scott talking about just that, uh, oh. red flags. I just forwarded um, so those I, when you're done, I, right? I'll just forward that to you. Yeah, I'll take some screenshots and, and right, forward cool. that to you. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> uh, yes, there's some red flags. Um, well, one of the new red flags I know we discussed recently is at the beginning of the season is with the new timeouts. So, you know, when there's three timeouts, three minutes, expect, you know, there's 308, there's a rebound, you got to pay attention to the coaches because they may want to get burned on and burn an extra timeout and lose one. They may call a quick one. Uh, a loose ball foul where you're going to the other end. You got to make sure you're looking at the table to make sure that they don't misconstrue that as an offensive foul. And then you have to listen to the PA announcer to make sure he announces, you know, number 22 offensive foul when you call a loose ball foul. Offensive foul is not a team foul, loose ball foul is. So those are some some red flags. Um, let me think of some other ones. A double hammer screen or any, any exchange is something that you want to pay attention to on the screen. Um, on the exchange when the ball when there's a dribble handoff usually there's a a time speed exchange uh first team fouls in the last two minutes two of the last any other um play calling guidelines you want to mention before we move on oh i think we you know a lot of things we're talking about and i guess we're going to look at a few plays later or just sequencing i think sequencing is an important thing something that intuitively I did. I think Mark Wunderlich is really a mensch. I mean, he is a genius when it comes to identifying and teaching officiating. Um, I mean, really, like super special. I mean, obviously, I have to say, um, if you had to put on the Mount Rushmore of officials in terms of teaching, I think the Mount Rushmore would probably be Daryl Garrettson, Ed. T Rush. I mean, I'm putting Mark. Mark's got goat status almost with the with the teacher. I think there's three ways to learn. You you hear it on this podcast, right? Yeah. You you see it when you watch your tape. Yep. And then you go out and you do it. So it's here, see, do, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there are three things you have to do. You, you listen to this podcast, you try and apply some things, you watch your film, and then you try and adjust things that you want to do better. Yeah, I mean, Mark really has a big shout out to Mark. He's a, he, he really is special with that. I mean, Daryl, obviously, um, you know, the, the inventor of the three-person system as we know it, um, referee and the defender comments. There's so many. I mean, I think about, Things that have like that Joey's told me that Mindy told him. Things that Danny told me that Forrest Harris told him. I mean, you know that officiating is has been so passed down. Yeah. Um, it's probably difficult to say one teacher, but um, so all a roundabout way of saying uh, the capturing of sequencing. Something that I think we inherently did, but really capturing it um, and memorializing it so that it can be taught. You know, up, down, rebound, screen and defender line. Um, you know, I I just think those are um, just really been phenomenal in terms of what we do on the floor. This is a question from Chris Buccelli, who's a Crown Refs audience member. We talked about having that next play mentality. What are some coping methods that you use to relieve stress at the critical moments? Uh, well, one, breathe. 
And when I mean breathe, not only breathe in terms of taking a deep breath and just calming yourself, but really locating where your air is. And I think that's an exercise um, that was taught and, and by Danny Crawford, just to keeping your air low. And there's a big difference in having your air up around. You know, when you get excited, you get anxious, and your air gets up higher, higher, higher in your, in your throat, and then boop, it comes out. And are you really have control over it? And, and, and as opposed to the air being real well down in your diaphragm and then, you, you know, block, first block, first block, and, it's, and then you're able to catch it because it gives you that extra piece of being there. And when I think about that, I think about, I don't remember the year, probably the 97 Eastern Conference Finals. I believe it was the Knicks Bulls. I don't really remember that because I don't look at it from that perspective. Like even watching um, the last dance these last couple of weeks, you know, my, we're all sitting there as a family and my, and my kids and my friends say, what, what are you watching the same thing you're that we're watching? Cause I would say there's Nolan fine. You know, look at Tommy Nunez. Yeah, yeah. Look at Joey there. You know, I'm watching it through those lens. So I don't really remember. I just remember one of the greatest sequencing plays and continuous plays was Charles Smith underneath the basket. And I think like Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant, Michael Jordan, like each blocked his shot twice. And I just remember Ed T being on the baseline and you can just see the air down in his gut and he's watching each one of these plays and he's, you know, and he's catching himself and they're not, and they're all good blocks. And you know that there's just not a more intense place for official to be. So. Those are the things in terms of knowing where your air is to get through the next play. Because at the end of the day, all of this is just habitual. You're just a sum total of your habits. And if you have good habits, you know, you might be able to get through it at one point, but you don't, you're, it'll sneak out on you at a bad point and you're sum total of your habits. So I'm certain that Ed T refereed, you know, preseason game 22 the same way he refereed that game and that allowed him to be able to do it. And so those are the things I think about in terms of next play. It's just really basic. You know, anybody who's elite in anything, you pick a, you pick a group. So I'll just say elite officials. They just do what their regular officials do better. They just do the basics better. They don't do anything super. They just do it better. They just do the basics better. That's what being a lead is. You just do the basics better than everyone else. Um, that's what makes you a lead. Not, you know, there's, and so our basics are really predicated on our habits. And so really good habits is what really takes you to those places. So when my mind, when I find my mind wandering, I go back to my habits and it's just referee to defense, stand your primary, call the eyes, trust your partner and be trustworthy for what you're responsible for. Because we have a, a system in place. I was watching uh, some tape yesterday with a group of people and we were watching the game from last year and we missed a couple plays. And, um, you know, and I, and I get it. Um, a lot of time younger, they want to go right to the mistakes, yeah. went to mistakes. And I kind of knew I was in the game. So I, I figured there were going to be some plays in there they want to talk about. And they talked about, like, I had a play that I didn't call that my partner called. Like, why didn't you? I was like, 
I don't know. I'm, let's, let's go back. Why didn't I? Let's look at the two plays before. I lost my concentration for a moment. I was going through it, and I couldn't figure out whether it was. And the good news was my partner had to play for me. And then we went on the next play, and same thing happened except it reversed. So some, we're not always going to be perfect, but if we can rally around each other and work the system, the system is pretty good. The system that we have is pretty good in terms of if you're going to get it, get it. And if you have doubt, then you don't. And you've got trust that somebody else is going to get it. And if they don't, it just doesn't get got. And you move on. But if it's important, if, if you take all those things and even take secondary areas of coverage and you take, is it, is, it, um, is it blatant and obvious? It'll be gotten. But, you know, we discussed this many times about going outside of your primary, judging your partners. That's, that's bad medicine. That's not going to work well for you. So I try to center myself and get back to my habits and back to what the fundamentals are, which are referee to defense, stay in your primary, call the obvious, the basics. Love how you said how elite, elite officials just do the basics better. That's such a, you know, simple way of, of realizing what it takes to get to that next level. Um, what else are you passionate about? I know you're the union rep for NBA referees. Talk to us about your off-the-court work with the NBRA. Um, I'm, I'm very passionate about it. I, I, it's been, I don't know, nine, ten years that I've been in this position. Um, I'm, I'm proud of the work that uh, we as an executive board and we as a union have accomplished. Um, you know, where our wages and the relationship that we've created with the league and collaborating for better wages, uh, better benefits and a better retirement for officials. Um, you know, no matter what you do, no matter the importance when, where we are in terms of, you know, our status in the league, you cannot play a game without a referee. And I wish that we as the collective would understand our worth, you know, officiating, you, you always come into it as an independent contractor. And you're, you know, we hear, that's my game. I did this. And we're always in this mindset of wanting them to like me a little bit more than they like you. And the reality of it is, as human beings, all of our standards care for us about the same. But at the end of the day, it's how we perform and the collective of how we work together that's really going to make the difference. Um, the, any of our leagues can go on without any one of us individually. But none of our leagues can go on without all of us collectively. And so I think we've done a good job in terms of, and we're constantly working on it in terms of the culture of the NBRA and what we stand for in terms of who we work for, who we represent, and how we represent each other. And I think a part of that, if you take into effect or you take into account the fact that now the NBRA, which now consists of the WNBA, the G League, and the NBA area officials. Um, because, you know, one a rising tide lifts all boats. And yeah, you can't have merged. Yeah, together because we all work for the same organization. We all work for the same company, all collectively trying to elevate the level of officiating in not only in our sport. I think we're blessed to have an organization that is supporter, supportive of labor. They understand that um, the stronger your labor force is, the more organized your labor force is, the, um, the less friction that there actually is 
in the relationship. Um, imagine what it's like to do what it'd be like to negotiate 70 different contracts versus one. Um, so I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of the labor mute, the labor union, the labor movement. Um, you know, I come from Chicago, you know, a Philip Randolph first, you know, organized the porters. Um, I just think it's, um, I think it's being dismissed because I think it's really what creates a strong middle class. And it's really what has made um, America as strong, much of a, a draw and where people want to come, where everyone has a fair chance. And if you start overlooking you know, labor unions and you start thinking about that and you start thinking about the things that they've done, like created the weekend, time and a half, you know, organization, those are things that are, are that we, uh, we take for granted that weren't always for granted. And I'm just, com- I'm, I'm, I'm just, confident that and i and i'm really grateful to see and even now it's starting to expand to where we have a lot of relationships we're starting to build relationships with major league baseball with the world umpire association and the nhl's referee association and nfl and with soccer and the psra and it's just all about we're all trying to get these plays right and provide an environment where our athletes can showcase their abilities and the collective good that they do in their communities and how as a vehicle, uh, even in our local high school associations, as a vehicle, just think about the importance of the high school football team and the importance of that collective and that community and games and that those games be officiated correctly and efficiently. And I think sometimes we, we've started to dismiss officials and dismiss our importance. And I think there's going to come a day um, where particularly in the summertime, um, well, if we're not going to be continually respected or we're going to be disrespectful, it becomes a situation where official is really concerned for their health and safety, you know, where we've gotten to the point where you can just be that dismissive and that abusive towards officials. Well, they should maybe have a couple of weekends where there are no officials and see how that goes for the summertime sports programs. Um, and so that's one of the things that I, I think our leagues and, and all the major sports leagues are trying to do is set a better example of how we deal with each other. Um, I think many times, even in our game, um, there's a lot of talk about contention and contention, contentiousness between players. And that's just not my experience. You know, you're talking about type A personalities, hyper-competitive organizations that, Look, an NBA franchise's community service department is uber competitive with another NBA uh, franchise's community service department. There's nothing. The marketing department wants to outdo another team's marketing department. I mean, you're talking about a hyper-competitive type A personality. And so there's always going to be a little bit of that tension, but there's always been a respect. And I have rarely, if ever, seeing that go off of the court. It is what it is. You deal with it. You keep on moving to the next play, the next game, the next season. We're all, you know, constituents in this game and trying to build this game and make it a better, bigger and better game. And I think we do a good job of that. And I think, you know, the fact that I think if you look at what Adam Silver's done with all the unions on the property, with the Players Association, now with the the, the WNBA, them being organized, their players association being organized, even after the officials, G League players were organized, they, they get it. And I think that that's why 
basketball, in particular the NBA family, is going to be probably the most popular sport in the world in the next 15 years. Well, a lot of um, people are getting weekends off now, so hopefully (laughs) post-pandemic, I think post-pandemic, you would think sportsmanship would go up a little bit now that players, coaches, fans, everybody has dealt with no sports. You would think when we hit the reset button, people would be a little nicer. I hope so. I hope so. Um, you know, I, I, I really do. I hope so. Um, you know, the, the MBRA, the MBPA, the NBA management spent so much time working on that, trying to get that message out of sportsmanship. So many people follow our players. You know, the reason why the fans are so passionate, and that's a different thing in the arenas, is because our teams are so passionate in their markets. I mean, when you look at what the teams do in their markets and their communities to give back, the people in those communities love and and they really enjoy it. And so they're passionate about it, but they don't want the game per se to be fair. They want to win. Right, right. I find that that hilarious. They say, I just want it fair. And I hear people on the side and say, I just want it fair. I'm like, come on, man, ask for what you really want. They're under the influence of emotion. They're under the influence yes. of emotion. God bless them for it too. God bless them for it because they want their team to win. And that's it. And that's and look, and that's where we come in as officials because it's impossible people don't understand it that we just don't care who wins. And that's a difficult concept for people because everyone cares to win except those three people and plays right when to provide an environment where everybody can be successful and our and our phenomenal athletes can really showcase their talents and our collective teams can really showcase their abilities and their cohesiveness together and we want to stay out of the way you know sometimes you have to get, get in for a quick minute you get out and you move on so what so they can get to the next play well said mark uh, do you have any time we could look at some plays Love to have sure. you. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So yes. we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune to the next episode to watch Mark Davis on Game Notes. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Crime Reps Podcast. Serve the game.